0: the ushering of the Messiah into the city of Jerusalem to be transformed into a moment of brightness that quickly became dark. And in the garden of Gethsemane, where tears as if drops of blood were being shed by that Messiah, it became clear that the destiny of all, all humanity was hanging upon his shoulders. And knowing the weight of that burden he prayed to the father, Father, if it be thy will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And after the Lord prayed that prayer, very quickly, armed guards came to arrest him. And they brought him before different magistrates and religious leaders to determine that he was worthy of execution. And today as we come to that place where that very horrific event occurred, a place that is the hill in Uphill called Golgotha, a place that we sometimes refer to as Calvary, a place that people would have associated with death, cruelty, an oppression by the Romans was transformed in that moment to a place that we now call a place of forgiveness. And we want to go to that place today. And as we do, we refer to what Matthew wrote at the end of his gospel. And they went out to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, years, 2,000 years later, scholars disagree about the meaning. Some, because of the remains of the people who were executed there, believe that that is what, why it was ascribed that term. Others see a rocky hillside where depressions in the rock seem to give the appearance of a skull. Whatever the reason, Jesus was led there to be crucified. And... In his day and age, to maximize humiliation, condemned criminals were forced to carry their own crosses. It was the ultimate version of public notification of a crime. So Jesus was ordered, carry your own cross. But Jesus was beaten so viciously, and he was in such bad shape, that he didn't even have the strength to carry, let alone drag his cross up the hill. The trauma, the blood loss, everything too overwhelming, too great. And that's where we meet four people who experience forgiveness at Golgotha, while our Messiah, who we've just celebrated, becomes the sacrifice, the lamb who is offered for the sins of many. Becomes the object of ridicule and scorn. And for people who are carefully aware of the meaning behind all of these events. He becomes our forgiveness. And the first of the four people that we meet. Begins with a man named Simon of Cyrene who had just arrived in the city. And he was traveling from, from the northern coast of Africa. And while he was in the city just doing some business, he, like so many people, realized the Romans were at it again. They were killing someone else. And they were parading this time three criminals, apparently on the streets towards Golgotha, for execution. And Simon had no doubt heard that this was happening quite a bit lately in Jerusalem. But whether he had actually seen it since he lived so far away, we don't really know for sure. But that's why he stopped to take it in. This was not a good execution for a person to see. And Simon, I know, would have been disturbed by how the Romans had mutilated the body of Jesus, and these soldiers were effective at their work. They knew how to inflict injury and misery. Showing mercy? I don't think that's anywhere on their list of values. Their job was to intimidate and to kill. And to keep the people in line. And as Jesus got closer and Simon was able to see him, he must have thought, wow, it looks like they tried to beat him to death before crucifixion. And it was a gruesome sight which all added to Simon's shock when Jesus collapsed near him and a Roman soldier saw him and said, you, pick up his cross and carry it for him. So Simon did what he was directed to do and he walked over to the cross and he picked it up and he began to carry it up the hill. And this man who just happened to be in that place at that time and who just happened to stop to see what the Romans were doing, becomes a character in the most important event in human history. And I think that's a good place for you and I to begin identifying with what's happening with Simon. I think all of us can recall a time when a person who walks into the room is just projecting to everyone that it's all about them. And that we know is essentially pride. And pride's one of those qualities that we understand to be wrong. But if you look in the faces of many people today, you'll begin to detect that they don't believe that they matter anywhere. And that's not right either. And that's not God's perspective. And for some of us in this room, we've traveled to different places and we've seen both happiness and hope. On one side and despair and hopelessness and pain on the other and for many of us in this church we've seen people who have for reasons that we don't even fully understand but in a spirit of desperation have made their way from Central America to our city and have faced all kinds of life-threatening circumstances in order to arrive here hoping that in some way, even though feeling marginal in society, that they can find a place that will make their lives less miserable. And I think a lot of us can see on the faces of Guatemalan children, faces of children that we see that have parents who've gone through this, and many of them maybe themselves alongside them. Yet, because in a place like this, When they begin to understand that Jesus loves them and they find that through the people that are here, they discover that God loves them too. And isn't it wonderful to know that maybe we're that person who wonders, do we really matter anywhere? And we come to a place called a church and realize that our Heavenly Father loves us and he loves us through the people that are the church family. And as we gather as a church family, we, we begin to see what's going on, and we hope that what we hear the pastor say or what we read in our Bibles matches up with what we uh, see behaviorally happening. And if and when it does, we sense that God's love is indeed very, very great. And that's why, the, that's why God said through the prophet Isaiah, I have ransomed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. And we can read on the banners at a football game in the end zone, For God so loved the world. But when God looks into each of your eyes, He says, I love you too. And as God is beginning to make clear to each of us that His love knows no bounds, We also know that there are people outside this building who are feeling the despair and the pressing in of life, the hopelessness. Some people are going so far to self-medicate so they can just find some consolation in their pain. Others take more extreme measures and consider taking their own lives, looking at things and realizing that mistakes have been made. And their life is a mess, spiritually, relationally, financially, maybe even morally. And as a pastor, one thing that I do know is people have come into a place like this with thoughts like that, and they've discovered that God was tracking with them the whole time, and God was putting signposts up around their lives to show them just how much he cares and in a place like this, it becomes clear that God doesn't see that person as insignificant or that person as destined for despair, but rather God sees a stranger who begins to comprehend and take it in. And did you know that Simon? He comes from a place that's different, that has different traditions, different ideas about God, and yet. God begins to speak to him. At first, it's a cross and a beaten man and the tragedy of being on the wrong side of a a deliberation that results in execution. And now at the crossroads of his life and that man, his destiny begins to change. And when we look at how Mark introduces Simon in his gospel, he describes him as a passerby named Simon who was from Cyrene. And he was coming from the countryside just then, and soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And Mark also notes Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, previously, Simon was a stranger to Mark, a passerby, someone that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then this transformation occurs where, as Mark writes about it in hindsight, he gives a shout out to Simon's father and and to Rufus and probably gives people justification to say if they ever name their child Rufus, they could say, that's from the Bible. And if uh, Simon is thinking about, in his own timeline, plans that have nothing to do with God, all of a sudden God shows up and those plans are dramatically changed. And his destiny is a cross that at first he carries and then eventually he embraces as his own. And in this traffic jam called Golgotha, Simon begins to comprehend God's plan for his life. At first thinking, oh, why me? Why did I happen to be here at this time? And then forgiveness happens. And his life and his understanding of himself and especially his understanding of how God views him as a person of great value, he carries the cross for the rest of his life. At first unwillingly and then Willingly, lovingly, and gratefully. I love Simon's story, but he is not the most unlikely person to experience God's forgiveness at Golgotha that day. There was a Roman military officer who experienced forgiveness also. And Mark writes again when the Roman officer who was facing Jesus saw how he died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the son of God. And remember that phrase, saw how he died. While Simon had no idea that he would be a player in this crucifixion, the officer woke up that morning knowing that he was going to be on execution detail, overseeing, first of all, a flogging, and then the crucifixion itself. And if anyone would have been callous toward what Jesus had experienced that day, It would have been him. He'd seen a lot of blood, a lot of injuries, and wounds inflicted by other soldiers that he had commanded. He had seen a lot of death, and he had caused a lot of death. And anyone who sees that again and again, well, they just have to turn themselves off psychologically and emotionally. So it wasn't seeing Jesus suffer there that day that caused this guy to think, Jesus is different. Now, death didn't move him. Love didn't bother him. None of this stuff made him uncomfortable. So, what you're going to see happen in his life is not the result of seeing Jesus all beaten up. He'd seen all that. Many times, he had seen people begging for mercy and cursing the soldiers as they were being executed. He had seen a lot of people die very poorly. He had seen... A person first on the cross, turning defiant, and then beginning to whimper like small children. But how Jesus died that day impacted him profoundly. Roman officers and Roman culture, they didn't value compassion. And a Roman soldier who had compassion on people, he was executing would have been disgusting to his fellow soldiers and officers. And one reason why Paul wrote in the letter of 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. God uses a surprising cross to reach the world and to save the world. And the Roman officer wasn't concerned about that agenda But somehow that agenda was concerned about him, and it broke into his life. Yeah, it was strange that the sky grew strangely dark, and he felt the ground shake, and I'm sure that he's thinking, this doesn't normally happen. But his heart was unchanged until what really struck him was seeing a man at his best. Not when things were going well, but when he was excruciating as he writhed in pain on a cross, expressing compassion for other people, comforting other people being crucified, and even arranging for his mother to be cared for by a friend. And just before Jesus died, he cried out in a loud voice, "'It is finished!' He didn't say, "'I'm finished.' He said, "'It is finished.'" And with a victory cry, an announcement that a goal had been completed, there was an accomplishment. Who dies with that much dignity? Who dies with that much courage and confidence when he is being tortured, executed, and publicly humiliated? Well, a lot of people die like the woman who was in a a bathroom commercial. She was on her deathbed and she's being comforted by all of her children and they know that it's just a matter of moments before she passes on and realizes that her life on earth has come to an end. And she's rather peaceful in that moment. But whenever, as the commercial in the most almost perverse way describes, it, des- it, it depicts a, a, a window that is not very far from her own deathbed and she's able to peer in at a person enjoying the features of a modern bathroom and all of the wonderful attributes that come from a particular brand and how they make that particular experience just as wonderful as can be. And her, the look on her face transforms from peace envy and she curses and she dies I know these are the weird times that we live in but it's a depiction of how much people get preoccupied with the things of this earth and the things that other people have and with being content with things that are lesser in meaning and a lot of people die that way cursing unhappy at the end of their lives, unhappy about how things have unfolded, a lot of people just see bitterness. And at that point of death, well, it's just, it's just good to be done. The Roman soldier had seen this hundreds of times, and it occurs and has occurred millions of times over time. But Jesus... He would never seen this before. Maybe that's why Mark noted. That, Ro- that the Roman officer. Stood facing Jesus. And he wasn't bored. He didn't turn away. He wasn't chatting it up. With the other soldiers. He was captivated. By this suffering man on the cross. Named Jesus. And what he didn't realize. Was that 700 years prior. Isaiah had written. He was oppressed. And treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Well, I think this Roman soldier is a great point of reference for you and I. As we come here today, and as God looks at us, and he envisions through his great mercy and his powerful love. That we would spend our lives on the other side. Spend it with him. Knowing that prior to that, maybe we'd been on the wrong side of Jesus. Maybe on the wrong side of his church. Maybe when we looked at him or we looked at the church, we really didn't see what we needed to see, but rather our eyes were clouded by things that were lesser depictions Caricatures. Perhaps it was a legalistic experience where persons were putting rules in your life that were arbitrarily designed and expectations were placed that if you didn't comply, it meant that you weren't in. Maybe it was just blatant hypocrisy or confusion or lack of hospitality or love. And maybe those things Jesus today is trying to cut through. Maybe you're one of those people. That ridiculed. Everything that had to do with church. And then maybe you're one of those people. That God happens to be working on today. And you see him die. And you watch him die. And as he dies. With such dignity. And innocence. And compassion and love, something begins to happen inside of you. There were others that day who found forgiveness in Jesus like that soldier who had declared, surely he must have been the son of God. And those others who found forgiveness in Jesus, well, they were diverse. There was one called Nicodemus who said, I can only meet you at night, Jesus, because you know my job is on the line here. And there were a few, like Joseph of Arimathea, who the scripture tells us, he, quote, loaned his tomb to Jesus for burial. Now what on earth does it mean when the scripture says, he loaned his tomb for burial? I don't know that you necessarily can do that because once you go in, you're expected to stay. But churning in Joseph of Arimathea's mind was a sense of hope and a vision that transcended this moment. And he realized that the things that Jesus said, the things that he knew that were written in scripture, the things that even Isaiah wrote were beginning to unfold like clockwork. And he realized that in that moment, the culmination of everything that needed to be accomplished was happening right before his eyes. And he was conflicted in that moment because the agony of Jesus on the cross just tore him to the very core of his being. But the realization that Jesus had shared that in order for the, man, the Son of Man to, to reign in righteousness, he must die and be buried and then three days come back. And so he loaned the tomb. And so, I don't know what you think when somebody says to you, can I borrow your grave for a few days? But I'm guessing something special is about to happen. And so Joseph loaned his grave to Jesus. You got to think that from that loan, there was quite a return on his investment. But the best known person who was there that day, is someone that we're not familiar with until this moment. And this is the person that history calls the thief on the cross. And there were actually two of them. And written in our scripture is the, 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 the description of a story that showcases that crucifixion event. And it has on either side of Jesus two criminals mocking him. And as the people in the crowd were, were coming by and, and joining in and saying, Jesus, come down from the cross. Save yourself. You're going to have a kingdom. And, well, if you are, let's see it. But as the, power, as the hours passed, one of the criminals noticed As even the soldier did, that Jesus was dying differently. And he had been convinced that there was something different about this man. So that when other criminals continued mocking Jesus and saying, Hey, Jesus, save yourself. And while you're at it, take us with you. Luke records what happened. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God? even when you have been sentenced to die, we deserve to die for our crimes. But this man, he hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, turning to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. What an incredible statement of faith those words are. It's a way of recognizing that beyond the realities of this moment, there is another reality that's beginning to take place. And he knew in the very core of his being that Jesus was up to something greater than what was happening in this moment. And when Jesus replied to him, as he turned and gazed into his eyes, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'd like to ask you each a question. If you had been Jesus and that man earlier in the day, that man had been mocking you and he had been ridiculing you and chiming in with others, and then he changes his heart and he says, Can you help me on the other side of the grave? What would you have said? Well, we've all been there and we've all said, Turnabout's fair play. We've all said, I hope that person gets their comeuppance. We've all said things out of anger or out of hurt or pain that have really just been the result of us reacting to something that was hurtful, that was damaging, that was unkind. And we held grudges. And we hold grudges for a long time. And in this moment, as Jesus is looking at each of the people that are around him, and he's seeing their duplicity, he's seeing the hardness of heart, he's seeing the fear, he's seeing the pain, he's fully aware of the whole range of the humanity that's on display in front of him. And as he sizes everyone up in that moment of the greatest pain that he would ever experience or that the world would ever really know, the only thing that can emerge out of his being is the great love that characterizes the Father who sent him and that embodied his life through the course of three years of ministry here on earth. And every moment prior, and in that moment, as he's beginning to bring it to an end, the only response that he could ever offer is love. And as you look at that cross behind me, and you see the shadow that it casts on larger and greater scale upon the whole Spectrum of all of humanity through place and through time and into this room. It is God's way of saying that I love you this much and that there is nothing that you have ever done that is going to keep me from loving you and showing you that everything that you need, everything that you don't even realize that you need, that God is working and has been working even up to this moment working to show you a pattern of the faithfulness of his presence in your life, of the imprint of the signposts of his love at different critical moments, of the pain that he's perhaps allowed you to go through so that he could finally get your attention All of those things are his way of saying, I want to have you with me forever, like that thief in paradise, and then on into everything that is being made new. And not only that, I want to make you new, and I want to allow you to experience the wholesomeness of the goodness and the love and the joy and the peace and on and on, the flourishing of God himself just flowing into every life that responds to him in love and gratitude. And I don't know how God has been working on you during this Uphill series. But I, I know that all of us have had some Uphill experiences in life that have kept us from really moving forward or have caused us to get stuck in worry or have placed us in a position where pain and bitterness have marked not only our days and weeks and months, but perhaps even our years. And all of those things God is wanting to just cut out of your life and to deliver you from it and to place it on this bloodstained cross that his son bore so that we might know him. And know him truly in the spirit of forgiveness that he offers. And in the sense of the great love that he allows us to to know. And the joy that fills us when we come to that place at Golgotha. And we realize that he truly was the son of God. Now as we just come to a close in this message time. Jesus has gone through this whole Ordeal, recognizing that through place and through time his father would be working and through place and time a message would be proclaimed and through place and time his spirit would be churning up within every heart a desire to come closer to him. And you might be in this room today because that desire has culminated in what you what, you're, what you see happening before you in this moment. And if God has led you in that way, and you're beginning to see clearly that this has God's imprint written all over it, then maybe it's time to respond to that great love. To allow who he is and what he's done to capture your life and to be transformed by it. I don't know how Simon of Cyrene's life Began to unfold. But clearly. When. When relation. Uh, relations. Family. Friends. Are depicted in scripture. Showing the points of familiarity. It means that everything. Has changed. And changed for the better. And I wonder. Has that change began to emerge. In, in, in your life. And have you began to know. The joy of the fellowship of the Son of God in your life? Have you surrendered your life to him and allowed him to take control? I'd like to offer this opportunity for each of you to respond to what you've seen, what you've heard, what God's doing in your life, and to make that a moment in this place and time for you to make a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And to know that he died for your sins and that in the rearview mirror of your life, there is nothing that you or I have done that can keep us from that love and that can, that, that, that can keep him from forgiving you and cleansing you and making you whole as he seeks to invite you into this church family.